Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the Whistleblowing Now and Then podcast. My name is Anna Myers, and I am about to talk to Liz Gardner, the new chief executive of Protect, a non-profit whistleblowing support and legal advice charity based in the UK. We're going to talk about whistleblowing and what Protect does, how the organization has had to adapt because of the pandemic, COVID-19, haven't we all, and what this means for whistleblowing now and what it might mean in the future. Thank you so much for listening. So I wanted to thank you for joining me today, Liz, um, because this is a, an amazing time for us all in so many ways, good and bad. But you're also um, one of our first guests on our new series um, with the Whistling International uh, Network podcast, Whistling Now and Then. So welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Could you just for us, you know, just introduce yourself and your organization? Yes, my name's Liz Gardiner and I'm the very new in post chief executive of Protect. Um, so I've just taken over um, responsibility for leading this 26 year old now pioneering whistleblowing charity, which some of you will remember under its old name, Public Concern at Work. And the purpose of the charity is to support whistleblowing, um, and we do that in three ways. We advise whistleblowers both on their individual employment rights and, crucially, on how they can safely and effectively raise their concerns. We support employers so that they can develop effective whistleblowing arrangements, and we campaign for improvements in the whistleblowing law. You said that Protect is 26 years old now, but what's your background? How did you come to this? Well, I've been with Protect just for a couple of years now, and I've, I've come as a qualified employment solicitor. I've also got a background in policy and parliamentary work. But I started with Protect as a legal officer working on the advice line, giving direct advice to whistleblowers. And that's been really important in understanding, you know, the importance of whistleblowing and the impact, or incredible impact that it can have on the individuals, particularly when they suffer detriment or are dismissed for raising concerns. You know, I've been really shocked by the uh, impact, um, the stress, the strain, the lifelong stigma that that can impose. And then I've also been really optimistic about the very good work that I've seen when we go out to work with employers trying to help them with training and consultancy to improve their whistleblowing arrangements. You know, there is a lot to be optimistic about because there are some good businesses and regulators out there who are valuing whistleblowing and who are trying to get this right. And that's interesting because it's not always seen as a positive activity, or at least maybe the assumption is that, that all employers kind of find it difficult to let whistleblowers, in a sense, lead their agenda, perhaps. Um, and, and you don't really see that as the only experience. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think we've got a long way to go across the UK and across all sectors to change the perception of whistleblowing so that it is much more positive and that people see it as a valuable contribution, uh, good for business, not just because it's managing risks, but um, it's the vital early warning system. That if you listen to your whistleblowers, you can stop harm in the public interest before uh, we hit disaster and damage to reputation, lives and livelihoods. Yeah. You said you were fairly recent as Chief Executive of Protect. So what's it been like leading an organisation remotely? Well, yeah, I mean, that 
that's it was an incredible time to take over pretty much the same week that we get move into lockdown so i haven't actually seen my whole team in person uh, since i've been appointed which is uh, it is a very strange environment but we're all getting used to working from home um, i'm really proud that um, within a week our whole team was working remotely our advice lines were open on the 23rd of march and our advisors are doing wonderful jobs from their privacy of their bedrooms now rather than in our confidential office space. Um, you know, so we've had to adapt to an awful lot of change. Um, we've got new, uh, new ways of working both for the advice team and for the business team because a lot of our work was uh, training and consultancy face-to-face with um, employers and, and their representatives. And of course, that's all been put on hold. So we've had to... Uh, develop a new virtual online training package as well. First one's been up and running and it's proving highly successful, but there's a huge learning curve here that we're all adapting to. Um, and, and in terms of the whistleblowing work that we do as well, there's a whole load of new concerns that we're grappling with, uh, not just the very obvious ones that we've seen um, in healthcare in terms of the protective um, equipment and concerns about social distancing, but also some really new um, uh, trends such as a uh, abuse of the furlough leave scheme that the government's introduced uh, around um, we're getting a lot of cases that are specifically related to the COVID crisis um, and around a quarter of those are about furlough leave fraud. Uh, I think it's a you know it's a really rapidly rising trend that we're uh, we're alarmed about. Could you explain a little bit how the advice line runs not so much uh, yet just in terms of how it runs, but also the types of contacts um, and the numbers of contacts you had before the crisis and then has, you know, what you've seen uh, changing and then we'll come back to the the substance of the concerns. Well, before the uh, crisis, we were running at around 3,000, just over 3,000 calls a year. And what's really surprised me is that we are as busy as ever. In fact, we've had more calls uh, in the last month than we had similar time last year. Um, and I think these are really difficult and worrying times. Uh, and maybe, you know, people are, are searching for that advice more than ever. Um, it's really, you know, our service is clearly very much needed. And uh, the percentage of people who call where you would classify them sort of definitely as whistleblowing or having an element of, of whistleblowing and perhaps calls that you get that aren't, aren't related to that? Has that changed? Well, I haven't got the stats for... Um, I couldn't tell you for exactly what's happening under COVID, but generally I would think that 80% plus of our calls do have the public interest element. Some cases we do have where, you know, we're advising people, actually the best way to deal with that is as a private employment right, and we will signpost or or steer them elsewhere for that concern. But most of our cases will have some um, public interest element. And you, what do you do with those cases? You're, you're, you, you know, in terms of the advice, you give and as a legal advice center really in the UK, um, where does your kind of advice services start and stop in terms of a a journey somebody would make with whistleblowing? Yes, I think we're a very unusual legal advice center in that we don't just give advice on the employment rights that you have as a whistleblower, you know, not to suffer detriment and not to be dismissed for your raising of concerns, but also this issue about how come you've now told us you've got a public interest concern and how can we help you raise that effectively, whether it's with your employer 
or with the appropriate regulator or even more widely talking to your MP or occasionally to the press. So I think we've got a very unusual setup um, as a legal advice centre in having those two elements to the, to the advice we give. Uh, what we do is we'll help a whistleblower from the outset when they're not sure whether they've got a concern or how to raise it. We will often have very long and regular conversations with our callers to support them through that process of raising their concern and, and what happens if they don't get the response they want and how can we help them craft their next submission to the next tier of where, where they can take it. Where we stop is that we're not able to help them through the tribunal system. And what we do at Protect is we do have a wonderful network of lawyers and barristers who are happy to help us wherever they can. And where we can, we will refer people out to either to our legal support network or to, to other solicitors when they get to the point of needing tribunal support, because unfortunately we're not funded to and we don't have the resources to help people all the way through the tribunal. Yeah, and not always is a tribunal necessarily part of the process, right? No, hopefully. We, we, you know, when we, if we help people at the right point and they come to us early enough and we can help them raise their concern effectively, you know, the ideal solution is that they never need to go anywhere near a tribunal. But we also know that you know, when we are advising people, we'll, we'll talk them through you know, what are their options. If you've run out of you know, options at work and you're looking towards leaving, you know, tribunal isn't the only one there either. And sometimes the stress, the, the cost, the, the risks of a tribunal are not worth taking and you might want to settle or, or, or think of other options as well. In terms of the types of calls that you, you received before, the kind of content or, or areas of, of um, concerns that, that you would receive most often or people would call you about most often, has that, you know, what were they and what's changed since uh, the coronavirus started to spread? Okay, well, we've always had um, a large proportion of our calls have come from the health and social care sector. And also uh, the next biggest ones are charities, financial services and education. So I, I don't think the nature of the, um, the areas and sectors has changed very much. Um, but our biggest concerns pre-COVID were around generally around working practices and a lot of financial malpractice concerns. I think we're very well known in the financial services sector. And of course, it's a very heavily regulated sector with very strong whistleblowing arrangements. So that's not surprising that we get a lot of concerns around that. Post-COVID, we've seen 40% of our calls are now COVID-related. And half of those have been around health and social care. But an awful lot of the others have come up from other sectors and particularly things like furlough leave fraud in small businesses where people have been put on furlough leave, their employer is claiming their wages from the um, job retention scheme and then the people are invited to come back in and work please uh, or work remotely. That puts the employee in a really difficult position. Right, so their employer is basically claiming for staff that they instead of you know, having to make them redundant or fire them, they're put on leave, which meant is it, if furloughed is, is sort of a paid leave in a sense, and the government right. is covering the cost. But what you're saying is employers are getting those costs covered, but are still asking their employees to work. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And we know, you know, we're a very small charity. We know that these are really troubling and difficult times for small businesses, and everybody's doing what they can to stay afloat. But employers who are claiming from the public purse and then making their employees work or their workers come back in or 
uh, work when they've been furloughed, they've crossed the line. That is fraud. And, you know, we'd like to see it stop. But what about what we've been hearing a lot in the press with, with the health and safety concerns and the, the lack of protective tools and coverings, protective uh, equipment for staff going into all sorts of workplaces, but obviously the key one being health and social care? Yes, uh, and we've had a lot of concerns about that, uh, particularly at the early part of as we moved into lockdown. Um, and I think, you know, the value of whistleblowing in this area has really been demonstrated because I think those concerns have been heard when we come to look back on this crisis and, and how quickly people um, moved. That's going to be important. But I think looking at what whistleblowers have done to say, uh, I'm frightened for my my colleagues, for myself, for my family, for the people I'm caring for, because we haven't got safe equipment in place. You know, they've raised it with their employers and they've raised it further. And they've, you know, some people have been threatened and very occasionally just dismissed for speaking out. Thankfully not, you know, we've had reports in the health sector where um, and the health secretary has come in and said, look, we want to hear people speaking out. They should be free to speak out. And I think that's an important message. In the care sector, you know, it's, it's, it's even harder. These are very, there can be very small businesses without simple whistleblowing arrangements, you know, and people, people are worried about their jobs, but we've heard people being told they must come into work, um, even when it's not safe. And those whistleblowers have been frightened and concerned, and they're coming to us for advice. You're based in London and and I'm up in Glasgow, so we're in two different jurisdictions in terms of recent um, policy about return to work or not. Mm. Um, So I know there's some immediate anticipations you may have. Do you have some concerns about what's going to be happening and and in terms of what you think might happen on your whistling advice line in the next few weeks? Well, I think we are likely to see, as people begin to return to work, I think we're going to be seeing some new challenges and some new concerns raised, particularly around our employers um, actually following. There's quite a lot of government guidance, but I think there's an awful lot to, uh, to take on as an employer about understanding what is a safe workplace. Who is it that we should be asking to return to the workplace? And, and what sort of, what do we do if, they, if they're too frightened to, or they've got a reason not to, because either they're vulnerable or they're looking after children or they're Um, living with somebody who should be shielding you know I think these are going to be hugely difficult times and both in workplaces and as we reopen schools you know we've we've heard lots of uh, concerns from the unions about are we actually ready and prepared for this Um, and I think we'll be hearing as well from whistleblowers where employers get it wrong and sadly are not listening to the concerns of their staff. What do you think the the post-pandemic world in terms of whistleblowing and whistleblower protection might look like? Are there positives and negatives that you can kind of, are you starting to think about? I think there are some some positives that we will be looking for as we reflect on this. I mean, I think these are going to be, for many months ahead, very anxious times. And And considering how our advice calls are already increasing, I think our advice is going to be very much needed. Um, And like other organisations, we're going to be looking to, you know, this is a really difficult time for all charities. Um, And and my number one priority is is making sure we're still there at the end of this crisis and Mm -hmm. able to deliver 
um, the wonderful advice that we can at the moment. I think the positive that we're going to be looking back, I mean, I think already we've seen a kind of mindset uh, shift in how we value some of the members of our society in health and social care and other key workers. But we've also seen really the importance of whistleblowing as that vital early warning system from, you know, from the, uh, from the, the doctor in Wuhan that first raised concerns about the virus through the PPE um, onto the new kind of concerns that we're seeing now about um, fraud and other kind of issues that are emerging as part of it. I think we've really seen the value of, of whistleblowing and I'm hoping that this will be something that we can take forward into our campaigning to improve the protection of whistleblowing, to, to reposition whistleblowing as a responsible and valuable thing to do in society um, and, and for employers to see it as that vital early warning system. People were saying it loudly, publicly, social media, and and was you know in in social media and uh, in the press. Obviously, they were probably speaking to their employees first, and so the, you know, we always think of the ones that we hear outside as potentially being a tip of an iceberg. But when times are quote unquote normal, the law really sort of, you know, does encourage people to raise things inside, and I think. You know, I just wondered what you thought about that, that we've had a situation where really we've been hearing it much more directly, you know, not necessarily through the medium of an employer or a regulator picking up on trends. It's been coming directly to us, staff speaking to the media, us listening to these reports. You know, what do you think about that in terms of whistleblowing advocacy and perhaps a shift in, in something? I just really would love your yeah. views on this. I think it's it's going to remain a very difficult area. I mean, the initial stories that we heard about healthcare workers being gagged and told not to talk, speak up about these concerns, you know, they, there has been a big backtracking on that. But I still think that, um, I mean, while we value transparency and openness, it, it's important that we have um, mechanisms inside, uh, in, you know, inside each individual employment place that are effective so that people do feel confident in raising their concerns there because after all that's most likely to be the best place to get their concerns tackled. Um, when they become so huge that you know with the PPE issue individual employers, individual trusts could not solve that problem and they become um, you know really much bigger issues that perhaps do need that public airing. I think I would be very disappointed if anybody in, in this crisis um, you know, was treated detrimentally and dismissed for raising those concerns. But I don't, and I, it, it, you may be right, there may be difficult to go right back to where we were. Um, but I think there, there does need to be a focus still on getting the concerns raised closest to where they can be resolved. Um, so I don't think we'll be um, moving towards a, it's okay to put it on Twitter and Facebook uh, if you've got a concern. I, you know, there still needs to be that element of reasonableness and and effectiveness of whistleblowing as well well that's very interesting and it's very interesting to hear you know from you who's working with an organizations with an organization that works with whistleblowers directly there's one of the questions um, we've just been discussing and you've answered is about sort of what's happened in terms of the organization moving into remote working and the advice line being set up quite quickly what are some of the other um, changes that have happened since sort of the COVID crisis has hit? Well, one of the things we've been trying to do is use this opportunity to really reiterate the value of, of whistleblowers. And we've been trying to work with others as well. I think, you know, 
drawing alliances and and supporting other groups as well for example um, we've been working with the doctors association uk supporting health workers to raise their concerns and uh, our legal support network has offered to go the extra mile if they do come across key workers who've been dismissed or subject to detriment so that we can refer on to them um, and we've also been sharing information about the trends that we've been seeing for example with the health regulators um, and raising concerns um, when whistleblowers haven't been able to report fraud for example to HMRC so I think there's a there's been a useful um, piece of uh, a policy work that we've been trying to do as well to sort of work with the wider with other partners as well to support whistleblowers as they go through these very difficult times. Have you found they've been more open to working with you in a way that perhaps they may not have seen you in quite that light prior to the, the coronavirus? I think everybody's got a slightly different uh, way of working at the moment and, and we're all, and I think there is a, you know, one of the good things that people are talking about that might come out of this is, is a different, you know, less competitive, less, uh, you know, more um, collaborative ways of working and, and, and people valuing people in different ways. I mean, let's hope that's one of the positive outcomes from this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very, very much. I think that's been a really fascinating view um, of what's been going on in the UK in particular and from an organisation that's been working in this field for so many years, um, but also is has that ear to the ground with the advice line really supporting people who are speaking up right now. Um, during a serious crisis. Thank you, Liz, for joining us today. Thank you very much. I've very much enjoyed talking to you. Well, that was the very first episode of Whistleblowing Now and Then. I really hope you liked it. This podcast was created by WIN, the Whistleblowing International Network, and co-hosted by me, Anna Myers, and Vigilenza Bassi, who you'll be hearing from in our next episode. For more information about WIN and this podcast, please visit www.whistleblowingnetwork.org. This podcast was produced in-house by our very own Christopher Atkinson. Our theme music is by the wonderful Glasgow-based Roots Quartet and edited by Josh Brown. We have so much more to talk about and to explore with whistleblowers, the people who work with them all over the world, and about the valuable impact whistleblowers can have on society. I do hope you'll join us again. Thanks. Mm-hmm.